Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Continuing our talk uh, series on the Milikirti, which uh, is one of the most cherished uh, Mahayana sutras in Zen, but also widely because of uh, its uh, hero is a layperson who somehow bests the best of uh, all the Buddhist Bodhisattvas, the Indian, old Indian Buddhist uh, uh, great teachers, and Vimalakirti's got it all. And the section we're going to look at today is when he takes on some of the great Bodhisattvas. But when we look at this, uh, we're going to see that the roots of actually our Soto practice and Master Dogen's philosophy is here too. Uh, you'll see that uh, what we do when we sit Shikantaza is nothing new. It has roots that go way, way back in uh, Mahayana Buddhism to the beginning, the philosophy of there's nothing to gain, nothing to attain is not new. We're going to see that here. But at the same time, it was Master Dogen's philosophy in sitting there. There's two sides to look at this, two sides which are actually, I say two sides of a no-sided coin. They're not two separate things. They're just two faces that is this one original face. The, one, the first original face is there's nothing to attain. There's no judgments of good and bad. There's nothing, no enlightenment to achieve because there's no separate person to achieve something outside, right? This world that we face that's divided into pieces of where there's me and you and this thing we want to attain, we can reverse that and just see that there's such a wholeness that there's no one to attain. There's nothing to be attained. There's no judgment of this is good, this is bad, because there are no separate things to say this thing is good, and I feel sit over here separate that this thing that's not me is good, and this other thing is bad. But at the same time, that's only one face of Master Dogen's philosophy and Mahayana, because the other side says, okay, that's true, but now... You should try to be good in this life. So let's get into this. Now, the first one is Vimalakirti takes on the great Maitreya. Now, Maitreya is the, the Buddha to be in the future. He's just in waiting. And uh, again, the Buddha says, hey, Maitreya, uh, 
the Milikurti, remember, Milikurti's uh, pretending to be sick, so all the grandchildren come to visit. You remember that from last time. Uh, so uh, Buddha says, Maitreya, why don't you go visit him? And Maitreya also goes, no, man, I can't handle it. I can't deal with that guy. He just, uh, and the Buddha says, why? And he says, we're all the honored one. I am not competent to visit him and inquire about his illness. Why? Because I recall how once in the past, I was preaching to the king of the Tushta heaven and his followers on the practices required to attain the state of non-regression. So uh, Maitreya supposedly is waiting up there in this place called Tushta heaven. Remember, this is Mahayana. This is like uh, Star Wars or uh, what is it? Lord of the Rings. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a real fictional, wonderful place. Okay, so Maitreya is up there in the Tushta heaven. And uh, he, he's supposed to be a once returner, uh, uh, which means that he's only got one more life and then he's, he's waiting and he's going to be a Buddha. Okay, so he's telling the king up there, King Tushta, uh, uh, that uh, how to do this. And at that time, Milikurti approached, I don't know, but Milikurti just happened to be walking through Tushta heaven, I guess. I don't know. And uh, said to him, Maitreya, the world honored one prophesies that with one more birth, you will be able to attain Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi, perfect supreme enlightenment. Just one more life. You're, how to say, you're in the finals. It's like the Olympics, man. Okay, you've gotten through the quarterfinals and the semifinals. Now you're, you're down to the finals. Okay, one more life, and you're going to have Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi, which means um, you'll be a Buddha. Now, just what birth does this prophecy apply to? Maitreya is saying, you're supposed to have one more birth, but what does that mean? Your past birth, your future birth, your present birth? If it applies to past birth, that past birth has already passed into extinction. If it applies to a future birth, that future birth has yet to arrive. And if it applies to a present birth, this present birth lacks permanence. For as the Buddha said, monks, one moment you are born, the next you will grow old, and the next you pass into extinction. We're already seeing that, uh, you know, some of us who are a little skeptical about the literal rebirth, the, the skepticism about literal rebirth, about you actually, you know, your heart stops, and then you go, and uh, we don't believe in a soul, but you go and then you, you find some other you're up there and you say, oh, wait a second, there's an open womb down there. Not an open room, an open room, it's not a motel, an open womb, and you fly in there and you're reborn again. You know, some of us say, well, you know, we're not sure about that. The roots are here because he's basically kind of saying already, you know, this whole thing about rebirth, what do you mean about rebirth? We're constantly reborn, constantly reborn. And yet he also says, and also we're constantly not born because we believe that there's something beyond coming and going. On the ocean, the waves rise up. On the ocean, the waves rise, well, go down. But the ocean is all always there, you know. So we believe that beyond the coming and going. So you see the roots of this kind of doubt or challenge is already there. Or does the prophecy apply to some state of birthlessness? But birthlessness is not none other than the state of correct realization. And the stage of correct realization can have nothing to do with prophecies of enlightenment. 
or with the attainment of Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi, Sambodhi. So how, Maitreya, can you give this prophecy about one birth? Uh, I would uh, kind of summarize this. If we're constantly reborn and constantly dying and always reborn in the past and always dying in the past and in the future, which birth are you talking about? But yet, at the same time, there's something beyond all uh, birth and death. So what do you mean you only have one more birth? And when you realize that, that is supreme enlightenment. Like that. Last paragraph there. Were you given this prophecy because of some birth that pertains to suchness, the big wholeness, whatever? Or were you given this prophecy because of some extinction that pertains to suchness? If you were given this prophecy because of some birth that pertains to suchness, you should know that in suchness there is no birth. And if you were given this prophecy because of some extinction that pertains to suchness, you should know that in suchness there is no extinction. Okay, so then he, he bests him on this, this view of, of uh, enlightenment that is this wholeness so whole that uh, nothing is born, nothing dies, because there's just this wholeness like that. Okay, so we got the view of the big, the big, I'm just waving my hands in the air because like Zen guys, Zen guys sometimes draw a big circle in here. I'm just waving my hands aimlessly in the air for the same reason, just go the big, whatever. Okay, all right, so we got that again, that picture of wholeness. And you also were in that wholeness, of course, there's no one to do bad or be done bad too. We say you can't have uh, murder in uh, the wholeness because the, the killer and the person killed, there's no two. So you can't have even that, right? But yet, okay, now, that, that, now we had that, but yet the rest of this is gonna say, oh, but yet down here on the world, there are people who can get hurt and there are people who can do bad and there are bad things you can do. So don't do them. You see, some people just think if you get up here to this place where you can't do bad, that means down here you can do anything you want. That's not the point. That was not Master Dogen's point. So, okay, next we go on to another bodhisattva called Shining Adornment. And Shining Adornment also doesn't want to go visit Vimalakirti. He says, world honored one, I'm not competent to visit him and inquire about his illness. Why? Because I remember once in the past when I was leaving the great city of Vaishali, Vimalakirti was just entering the city. Vimalakirti is always there, just always shows up, right? And I accordingly bowed to him and said, Layman, where are you coming from? And he replied, I am coming from the place of practice. And uh, I asked him, uh, where is that place of practice? And he replied, an upright mind is the place of practice, for it is without sham or falsehood. The resolve to act is the place of practice, for it can judge matters properly. A deeply searching mind is the place of practice, for it multiplies benefits. The mind that aspires to Bodhi is the place of practice, for it is without error or misconception. Now, again, I'm gonna say, you remember these holy books, they tend to write big, okay? 
they tend to say things big and they tend to depict things perfectly. You know, the meaning is usually pretty, could be sim more simply felt or expressed. And also remember, even though they present things very idealized fashion, of course, when the human being is reading this, know that this is kind of an idealized image. So we're, we should aim in that direction. But of course, uh, we're not anywhere near as perfect as the people in the story because they're in the story, you know, and I'm not in a story. So it's hard for me to be as perfect as these people. But this is the, the image of what we should try to be in that direction as much as possible, you know. I don't know if you can ever be as perfect as Vimela Kirti, man, because he's just, you know, he just gets everything right here. So what are they saying? They're basically saying the place of your practice is when your heart is straight, when your heart is in the right place and wise, and when your actions are wise and good. That is the place of practice like that. And when you're constantly inquisitive and trying to learn and, and uh, encounter new situations, but do the right thing, that's the place of practice. That's your place of practice. So you're going to ask, uh, where is Vimalakirti? And I'm going to say, he's going to show up where you are. When your heart, your words, your thoughts try to do right. That's what he's talking about here. You try to see what is true and not false. You try to act with proper, act properly. Okay? When your mind is in the right, wise place, this is your place of practice. So, for example, he gives some examples now. He says, uh, almsgiving is the place of practice because it hopes for no reward. He says, when you give, but you give without your thought of what you're getting out of it. What's the profit for me? But you give. That's a good place here. That's your place of practice. Observance of the precepts is the place of practice because it brings fulfillment of vows. Forbearance is the place of practice because it enables one to view all living beings with a mind free of obstruction. When you're tempted, you know, to do something you desire with excess and you kind of hold back and find moderation, that's a place of practice, right? There's that chocolate cake. I want it. I'm on my diet. That's all I think about is chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. Oh, wait a second. I will forbear. That's my place of practice. When you can get angry. But you don't, because that's what we do, Buddhists. We try to avoid anger. That's in the precepts. That's your place of practice. Whatever you do, if you can avoid to get angry, that is our practice in life. That's our practice place in life. Assiduousness is the place of practice because it forestalls laziness and rejection, regression. Any place in life that you can be lazy, you know, ah, I'll do that tomorrow, that thing. But you do it, okay? We Buddhists, we like to do things that I'm a procrastinator. The world's worst. I would only come to the Zen thing on time because you guys are here. Otherwise, you know, I'd say, oh, I'll come when I want. You know, I'm a world's worst procrastinator. 
but whenever I avoid that, that is my practice place in life. And uh, you see, and that's yours too. Meditation, zazen, is your practice place because it makes the mind tame and gentle. Wisdom is the place of practice because it sees all things as they are. Whenever in life you have a chance to bring Zen wisdom to it, you know? For example, we've been talking in the book club of sometimes when I was sick and I was, oh, I'm in bed, I'm miserable, but I could find, oh, the wholeness, the peace, and find some wisdom. Oh, that was my practice place, you see, in the bed. Pity is the place of practice, for it views all things equally. Compassion is the place of practice, for it bears up under weariness and pain. Joy is the place of practice, for it revels in dharma delight. Indifference, I think that's probably more equanimity, is the place of practice. So when something bad happens and you can find some peace, even some joy, uh, even some acceptance, that's your place of practice. Not just uh, here in, or in Tush to Heaven, wherever Tush to Heaven is. I always laugh when I hear Tush to Heaven because it sounds like a Jewish word, you know, Yiddish Tush. I always feel, I don't know, I have it of Tushes. I don't know what that is, a Tush to Heaven. Anyway, that's another thing. I don't know. But uh, it's not in Tush to Heaven. Tush to Heaven is right where you are when you find a little peace. Causes and conditions are the place of practice for for none of the links of the chain of causation, from ignorance to old age and death, has ever come to an end. Earthly desires are the place of practice, for through them we know the nature of suchness. This is the thing, again, that Vermilakirti was very famous for. Desires and being in this world of causes and conditions, this complex world of feelings and things coming and going, and, and just being in this world of desires, not to escape it, when in this world of complexity and the big mess and uh, desire, we can find the wisdom. This is our place of practice. Through them we know there is no ego. When you can drop the self in this world of things in the self, this is your place of practice. All phenomena are the place of practice. For through them we know the emptiness of all phenomena. So not to go to emptiness, but to know this world of phenomena, whatever's happening and whoever and whatever is empty in this world of stuff. That's your place of practice. Okay, now the next story is kind of the same thing. The next story uh, is a kind of strange one. Uh, so Mara comes. Mara is the Buddhist devil who's always showing up to cause trouble. I told you, this is like Star, Star Wars. You need a bad guy. This is Darth Vader, okay? You need a bad guy to show up, okay? So Mara shows up. He's always causing trouble. Or what's the guy with the ring? My precious. My pre you know, they're, they're, this is the ring. There's got to be some temptation, some bad guy. So Mara's the guy with the ring who turns, you know, Fro Frodor bad because he wants the ring. It's excess desire is what that ring is giving him, right? I want my precious, my ring, right? Okay, same thing here. So Mara shows up and offers his bodhisattva 2,000, how many is it? 12,000, oh, 12,000 heavenly maidens, you know? They can be yours. And the bodhisattva goes, no, man, I can't. I got that whole celibacy thing. 
I can't do that. But, you know, Vermilla Curti shows up and he goes, yeah, I'm a layman. I'll take him. No, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So Mara says, okay, layman, here you go. Here's your 12,000 uh, uh, heavenly maidens, you know, to do with what you wish. And then Vermilla Curti says, but, you know, it's not about like sex like that. I'm going to show them like some other ways to live well and to take pleasure in life. That's what this story is here. Now, a couple of things here. This doesn't say, notice, all sex is bad because he's a layperson. Okay? This is not a lesson that all sex is bad. He never says that. Also here, I, I checked this. We're going to get to this later. We were discussing recently vegetarianism and how Buddhism is traditionally not vegetarian. It was in China. I looked through this sutra, which is a big Mahayana sutra. There's nothing in there about don't eat meat. There's no mention of it. I couldn't find any. Okay. There are other sutras that got into this don't eat meat. But again, here in this time, it was moderation or uh, it's not a big issue. What's an issue is desire, excess desire, excess desire. Same here with sex. It's, it's not saying don't have sex. It's saying, you know, the excess desire is bad. So here, Vimala Kurti said, not saying I don't have sex. I'm a layperson. I have a family. He's saying, I'm not here for the 12,500 12, maidens. I want to show them that there are other delights in life. And that's what we're going to list here. And you're going to see it's more good things that you need to bring into your life. Uh, just one more example here before we move on. I forget. There's also a little bit of uh, women's rights coming in here, which is pretty good. This was written about the, the first century A.D., okay? So women really didn't have many rights. So you notice it's the men here giving the women away. Or, and then uh, later, uh, Mara says, do you want to give them back? And the layman says, I'll give them back to you. And the women say, hey, wait a second. We don't want to go back. Now, this was a big thing for women's rights 2,000 years ago, for the women to say, hey, wait a second, you're not asking me if I want to go back. And they and Vimila Kurti actually persuades them to go back. But there's a feeling there that it's kind of their choice, which I think is a big thing uh, ahead of their time. But anyway, Vimila Kurti said, uh, uh, basically, Vimila Kurti, I'm going to go down the third paragraph. Vimilakirti taught them these other delights called Dharma delights. To delight in constant faith in the Buddha, to the delight in hearing the Buddha's teachings, the law, to delight in giving alms to the assembly, to be uh, donate, donating mostly to, to the monks, to delight in casting off the five desires, to delight in viewing the five components as vengeful bandits. I didn't, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it's not a good thing, okay? Uh, the, the vengeful bandits. I, 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 I should have uh, looked into that a little more closely, but you can imagine this is all about excess desire and how the senses make us crave things. Um, when you get past that, that's the delight. To delight in view, viewing the four great elements as poisonous snakes. 
to delight in viewing the mind and the senses as an empty village. It goes on and on and on. Boy, I really printed everything here. Uh, to delight in pursuing and guarding the desire for the way. Desire to delight in, let me just list them, benefiting li living beings, honoring and supporting teachers. I like that one. Please, uh, yeah, pay attention to that one. To uh, practice widespread generosity, to observe the precepts, to be patient, humble, gentle, harmonious, to uh, amass good roots, to do good things, to delight in zazen, in meditation, to um, keep a bright wisdom. It goes on like this, all these good things. Maybe I'm just going to to delight in cutting off earthly desires, to delight in purifying the Buddha lands, to delight in gaining merits, that's more doing more good things, uh, to delight in listening fearlessly to profound teachings, to delight in three gates to emancipation. Okay, okay, you can read that all on your own time. I've listed, listed all that. Let me make it really simple, okay? When you find delight in doing good things, and avoiding excess, and avoiding bad actions. That's the delight. That's the Dharma delight, man. That's our joy. Huh? Okay. So that's what it's getting at. You can read the whole list there. But he teaches this, the, 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 this group that the real joys in life are when we do all this good stuff, being charitable, Avoiding excess desire. Not all desire, again, excess desire. Uh, avoiding falling into all the, the traps of life to be too greedy, too angry, like that. Okay? And this is true at the same time that we also know this realm where there's nothing to be angry about, nobody to be angry, nobody to be angry at. That's true too, it's all true, okay? Somehow in this world of complexity and ugliness, when you can find the peace and the beauty in your heart, that's the delight, that's the place of practice, okay? So, the last uh, section I just put in here uh, was uh, just one more bodhisattva that, um, uh, didn't know what to do with Vimila Kirti, but it was kind of nice because it emphasizes giving, giving to the poor. And I think that's important in this day and age, um, too. Remember, Vimila Kirti, a lot of the people reading these sutra, they were educated people and they had, you know, some wealthy people uh, who were students of Buddhism back then. And we're relatively wealthy, anyone in the West. Anyone in the West. We're relatively wealthy. So this is a section that you find in all religions, which says... Uh, hey, mister, it's that time of year, not just that time of year, any day. Don't forget the poor. It doesn't say, notice it doesn't say give all the money to the poor, but it says give a lot. In this case, I believe he's talking about 50%, okay? Which just seems about right to me, maybe. Uh, I don't think this is tax policy advice, but I think if we had about a 50% tax rate with the very rich paying a lot more and the folk persons who can't afford it paying less, and it balances out about 50%. This is actually 2,000-year-old tax advice, okay, on how we should set our tax policy. That's my personal feeling. I don't get usually political here at all, but this is my feeling 
50%, uh, someone uh, who has billions of dollars maybe pays a little more. Anyway, <clears throat> then Vamilakirti took the pearls, someone donated some pearls, and divided them into two halves. He gave half of them to the lowliest poor of the city, who had been disdained by those present at the sacrifice. You know, they were not the people we let in here. You know that. They were disdained by the people who came. The other half here offered to the Tathagata, the Buddha, and he performed a miracle such that all present beheld the universe. Okay, again, we're back in Star Wars here. He performed a miracle and this uh, pearl necklace appeared, which was all decorated with pearls. It's, it's wonderful, it's amazing, okay? But then, having shown such a miracle, the Milikirti said, if a donor of alms bestows gifts on the lowliest beggars with equality of mind, dis dispensing them with impartiality, as in the same way that the Buddha gives away his blessings, if one exercises great compassion in equal measure, uh, the other translation, I think, said 50%. So, but in equal measure, without secret reward, this may be called perfectly performed dharma bestowal. So real charity uh, in Buddhism is not just to give to the monks, not just to uh, keep it yourself. Don't forget the poor. Um, that's uh, true in uh, not just the Buddhist religion, many religions. All religions, I think, say that. Don't forget the poor. Okay? Any questions? This is the part where it gets hard. I don't know if you don't have any questions because I've answered everything so completely or I've just left you speechless and stunned. Which one is it? <laughs> Number two. Yes, Max. Good. Thank you. Oh, I'm not sure. It just came up because you had mentioned this earlier about... Um, about rebirth. I, I just recently found out one of my good friends from grad school passed away very unexpectedly. And I was just thinking about things like, uh, like Meta and things like that. And I just kind of wanted to know, like, in your opinion, is there anything I can do for her really? Or is it, is it more just, you know, what I can do for the people who are, who are still here? Well, I'm sure that person would want you to uh, worry about the people who are still here first, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I died, and I would think, uh, please take care of my family. Don't worry about me. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm fine. <laughs> like that. Okay? Um, and uh, we say funerals are for the living, you know. <clears throat> you know, we do. But uh, we also traditionally say that when we do good, it has effects. And I don't know how you feel about, you know, literal rebirth, but uh, we wish the person what we do here helps them in the next world, then we do it. And if it doesn't help them in the next world, no harm, you know. So we chant, we light some incense, because if it helps them get a, in the next world, get a good birth, that's the traditional belief. Good. You know, and if it doesn't, then uh, we lost one stick of incense. You know, what's the, there's no, uh, no harm in it. But as I always say about metta, or when we chant the Heart Sutra, there's a couple of reasons for this. For example, metta, we wish, we're going to chant it later today. We wish peace 
even on difficult people on the other side of the world. Now, does that mean that there's kind of some magic woo-woo here? Maybe, I don't know. I'm, a, you know, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I say, maybe, I don't know. The moon may be made of green cheese, they say, you know. Maybe UFOs are from outer space. I don't know. But I, I kind of skeptical. I kind of doubt it. But I'm going to tell you this. In this world of bad things, if I say right now, Max, go to hell. You went, what? My evil, my anger traveled across the other side of this world, at least through the internet here, and actually touched you. And I feel your heart turn a little dark. Okay? So you see, there is power in my words. So if I wish a good thing, at least it affects my family, my town, on the internet. You know, if I put a nice posting on Facebook instead of a nasty posting, it really spreads around the world. So our words and our actions do have effect. We make this world a little uglier or a little more beautiful. So wishing meta for your friend does something. It's like casting a stone in the water. It has some effect at least around you, and maybe it will touch their family, which is what the person would have wanted. So when I go to the family and I say, sorry for your loss, and you know we're here and we love you, doesn't that have an effect? Of course it does. It's a real power, you see. Okay? And when we chant the Heart Sutra, it reminds us of emptiness, this great wholeness. And that's the lesson, too, that your friend died, but there's something beyond death, too. So that's we chant the Heart Sutra. So, yes, it may help him in the next world, but even if it doesn't, we can help the people in this world, and we can help our own heart. And that is the place of practice, isn't it? That is the Dharma delight. Like that. Okay? Sorry about your friend. We'll dedicate uh, our Zazen today to your friend and all who loved him. Okay? Anything more before we uh, move on? So we're going to have a very short uh, Zazen now. Would you hand me that bell? Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.